Hi, and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. This week, I'm going back to the 70s, and I will be talking about a crime that is probably one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in the UK. Now, a couple of days ago, this was also recommended to us by Sarah, and I just finished my research on it, so, you know, great minds think alike, so thank you for the recommendation. And this is the murder of Leslie Molseed. Okay, so before I begin, this is a warning. This is a crime about a child. Um, so listeners' discretion is advised. What I will say also in this warning is, I don't know if it's helpful at all, but you might still want to listen because it's not like, you know, the James Bulger case where it was proper child, child, child throughout the whole thing. This one mm-hmm. is obviously the case is against the child but then a huge bulk of this is actually not going to mention the crime and things like that if that makes sense so it's an awful murder about a child but I don't focus on that if that makes it any easier yeah no I, I get roughly what you're saying yeah that makes sense great now Caitlin have you heard of this one I have not I have yeah. not the name I feel like it did ring a bell but I wouldn't be able to tell you the ins and outs no, I agree, obviously. <laughs> we never know anything. But when you see a photo of her, I think it would, you know, she is recognisable. Not to us, obviously, we didn't, we weren't born then. But you know what I mean? When, when you're doing all this stuff, you, you see all these faces. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Now, I'll just begin as well. So Leslie Molseed, she was born on the 14th of August, 1964, to parents Fred and April. However, Fred and April, they were separated by the time this case took place. And April was married to a man named Danny. So Danny became Leslie's stepfather. Leslie was the youngest of four children. She had two older sisters named Julie and Laura, and also an older brother named Freddie. The Maltseed family, they're very normal. They were a happy family. You know, Leslie was a happy little girl. She was very smiley. She always had a smile on her face. She was chatty. She loved to chat. I'd say she was probably one of those kids that, you know, like, you can either be a shy kid or a chatty kid. And I think I was shy and Caitlin, you were chatty, if that makes sense. Um, That is so true. Yeah. Now, like, I met Caitlin because I was at the ice cream man and she was chatting to my mum. (laughs) <laughs> like and we were seven so that's I still prefer your mum yeah I don't blame you to be honest I prefer your mum now anyway so Leslie she was a chatty little girl she was confident she was kind um she adored music she specifically was obsessed with the band the Bay City Rollers now her mother April said that Leslie and her sister Laura would kind of argue and bicker quite often because Laura also loved the Bay City Rollers and she had posters of them on her bedroom wall and Leslie like the typical kind of sister behavior would just go in take them off the wall and put them up on her wall so you know it was kind of just like that a normal family life she was a very angelic little girl she had lovely black curly hair she was very petite she was 11 years old but she probably looked a lot younger because she only weighed about three stone at the time. 
Her father said that she looked like butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. As well as looking a lot younger physically, her mental age was actually a lot younger too. So she was kind of about six years old or so. So she was born with a heart condition. And at three years old, she had to undergo open heart surgery to try and fix this. However, this open heart surgery actually had an effect on her development, both physically and mentally. So she was very small. She was quite frail and she had a learning disability by the time, you know, after that had all happened. So the mental age, I did say six, but it was roughly probably between four and six. So she was quite vulnerable. So we are now in 1975 and it's Sunday the 5th of October. As it was a weekend, there'd be no school. So Leslie was at home that day and around about 12.30pm, Leslie's mum, April, asked her to run a quick errand for her. She gave Leslie some money and she asked her to pop to the local shop to pick up a loaf of bread and an air freshener. So Leslie put on her shoes, her blue raincoat and she grabbed her blue bag. I think she liked blue and she walked out of the door and headed to the shops which it was only about a 10 minute maximum walk away from her home and it was a journey that Leslie had taken many many times before now this for one it is the 70s so kids practically went everywhere alone but also it's a normal thing to be sent to the shops from your parents like when you were younger or it was when we were younger I don't know about nowadays obviously the world has changed drastically when it comes to safety and things but Leslie was often sent to the local shop because it was one of her chores. So the route to the shop was one she was very familiar with and yet for some reason on this particular day Leslie never returned home. In fact it's not even known if she even made it to the shop because the shopkeeper couldn't recall whether or not they had seen Leslie in there that afternoon. The last place that Leslie was seen that day was an alleyway called Stewart's Lane, which was a part of her route to and from the shop. A couple of Leslie's friends um, and members of the public saw her walking along this alleyway. However, she was not seen again after this. When Leslie hadn't returned home, her mum, April, immediately became concerned because, you know, it just wasn't like her. Leslie wasn't the type to just go off and not let her mum know she if she wanted to stay out to play with her friends or do anything like that she would make sure to go and ask her mum before you know just going off and doing it so april sent one of her other daughters laura out to look for her however laura had no luck and so other family members and friends of the family went out searching too they were looking along the streets and the roads and everywhere that leslie could have taken to the shops but they never found her there was no sign of the 11 year old anywhere just a couple of hours after she left the house to go to the shop, at approximately 3pm, Leslie's mum contacted the West Yorkshire Police to report her youngest child as missing and immediately a police search for Leslie began. They started conducting searches on foot, sending police officers out to look for any traces of Leslie along the streets and around Rochdale and also along the adjacent M62 motorway. Oh, also I don't know if I've mentioned this. She's from Rochdale, which I think is near Manchester. I'm sorry if I've not mentioned this already. They also had a helicopter scan the area from above to see if they could spot anything as well. And they started taking statements from people carrying out door-to-door -door inquiries, asking the neighbours if they'd seen or even heard anything. Missing posters with Leslie's face were created and distributed, but unfortunately, 
nothing came from them. No one had any idea what had happened to Leslie that afternoon and no one knew where she went after those last sightings. As the hours and the days ticked by, of course, everyone's hopes that she would be found safe and well kind of got smaller and smaller. It seemed more and more likely that if Leslie was going to be found, she either may not be alive or, you know, she might have been the victim of foul play. As we've always said before, 24 hours is, you know, the most crucial part of um, a missing person case. So just three days after Leslie disappeared, on the 8th of October 1975, her dead body was found at around 8 in the morning by a man who had been travelling along the A672 road near the Moors in West Yorkshire, which is about a 20-minute drive away from Rochdale. The man had been parked in a lay-by that morning and all night as well because he'd been driving for a long time, so he decided to pull over and get some sleep. So when he woke up that next morning at around about eight o'clock, he got out of his car because he needed the bathroom. And so he walked up the embankment next to the lay-by onto the moors and that was when he spotted something on the ground. In the distance, he saw what he thought at first was just a bundle of clothes on the ground and so he walked closer. And that was when he realised that it wasn't a bundle of clothes after all. He had actually found the dead body of a young girl. And this was, of course, the body of 11-year-old Leslie Molseed. Leslie had been brutally murdered and is believed in the spot where she was found. She was killed on the moors, so she must have been abducted on that afternoon that she went missing. And then her killer took her to this area and that's where she died. She was closed when she was found and she was discovered in the same clothes that she had been wearing on the day that she had went missing. It was later determined in her autopsy that Leslie had been stabbed to death with a knife and she had sustained 12 stab wounds to her body in total. Leslie had been stabbed in her neck, her back, her shoulder and one of these stab wounds was so deep that it penetrated her heart. Leslie, she didn't really have any defence wounds to her body. You know, she was very petite so she wouldn't have been able to put much of a fight up. It was also determined in her autopsy that tragically Leslie had also been the victim of a sexual assault as well because traces of semen were detected on her clothing, specifically in her underwear. So it was clear that this brutal murder, it was sexually motivated, which it angers me, you know. It just makes it worse, doesn't it? Yeah. Like everything else is obviously really bad, but that just makes it so much worse, especially when it is someone young. Yeah, no, I agree. Now, unfortunately as well, though, we're in the 70s. The semen evidence, it wasn't going to be very useful because DNA technology, it just wasn't a thing yet. We've mentioned this in previous episodes as well. You know, DNA such as fingerprinting didn't come into proper full use until about 1986. It was being tested and slowly becoming something that had huge potential in, you know, the 70s and 80s, but obviously needed work. So because of this, they were unable to get a DNA profile from the semen and compare it against any suspects because they just didn't have the top technology and tools and knowledge as yet. So what was a missing persons investigation? Well, obviously it's now turned into a murder inquiry and now the police were looking for her killer. The pressure was on as well because you can imagine news travels very, very fast and the news of Leslie's awful death quickly spread around the local area. Everyone was just completely devastated in the whole area. They were shocked and they were scared, especially those who had younger children, because 
there was a sexual predator and a murderer out there. Now that Leslie had been killed, a lot of parents as well in the area, they stopped letting their kids go out alone just out of the fear that they could be next. As part of the police's investigation to find the killer, they decided to appeal to the public and they asked for anyone who may have had any information about Leslie's murder to come forward or any information that could possibly be related to Leslie's murder, as in if anyone had seen anything strange or seen anyone acting suspiciously that they thought might have been of interest to the police. Now, this is obviously, it's a good start, and you would expect the police to do this, and they would you would expect them to ask around and investigate. However, in my opinion, when you start to ask for people to come forward with information on folk that you think are acting suspiciously, it can be a fine line between a proper suspect, you know, who is capable of committing this crime, and someone who is not the, like the norm. Now, remember as well, we're in the 70s, so a lot of things that are now more accepted from people would not have been back then. So please do keep this in mind because I'm now going to tell you about where this police investigation goes. So following this request for information, the police received one particular lead that they decided to look into further because they'd been contacted by a couple of young girls that had told the police that just two days before Leslie was killed on the evening of the 3rd of October in 1975, they were outside at the local youth club when a man exposed himself in front of them. The girls went to the police and they told them that the person who exposed themselves was a Stephen Kishko and he was the one who did it. When the police received this lead, they started looking further into Stefan and they instantly believed that he fit the profile of a man that murdered Leslie Molseed. Stefan was 23 years old at the time that this case took place. He was born in 1952 to his parents Ewan and Charlotte, although sadly his dad had passed away by the time this case occurred and so Stefan lived with just his mum. Stefan's parents had emigrated to Rochdale after the Second World War because they were originally from Yugoslavia at the time, which would now be, um, they were from Slovenia. Stefan grew up in Rochdale and he was a local. He worked as a tax clerk and he was well known in the local area. Now, most people in the community knew who he was and the majority of people that knew him actually thought that he was quite odd. He was a bit different to what they thought was the norm. And Stefan, much like Leslie, He also had a learning disability, which meant that his mental age was a lot younger than he was. So he was 23, but was determined by a psychologist that he probably had the mental age of a 12-year-old. And it's believed that he was probably autistic. Stefan had this hobby of making a note of the number plates on cars that he'd seen, which, you know, that could be an example of a character trait of an autistic person. Now, nowadays, autism is a developmental disability that most people, they're aware of it. And that most people, you know, you have a small understanding of it. But back in the 70s, not many people really understood it. They didn't want to understand it and they didn't want to understand Stefan. They just saw him, you know, as strange and odd. This is coming from what the general public thought. However, So did the police. When they started looking into Stefan, they thought that he was a strange man. And so to them, he fit the profile of the kind of man that they believed had killed Leslie Molseed. And so they decided to conduct a search of Stefan's car to see if they could find any evidence in there which may have linked him to Leslie's murder. 
When searching, they apparently found some pornographic magazines as well as some sweets. Now, to the police, this appeared to be solid evidence and they built a theory that he had sweets in his car to lure children into his vehicle and they thought that perhaps that's how he abducted Leslie. You know, he promised to give her some sweets so she'd get in his car. The police also found some carpet fibres in his car that were apparently similar to carpet fibres that were found on Leslie's body. They also took Stefan's notebook where he jotted down car number plates that the police found and they he they had seen that he jotted down a number plate of one car that had apparently been seen near the embankment where Leslie's body was found near the crime scene. But nothing really came of that. Now, despite all of this circumstantial evidence, the detectives in this case immediately jumped to the conclusion that Stefan must have been the killer due to all this evidence that they have and because he was seen as a bit odd, you know. Also, a huge part was because those girls told the police that it was he who was the one that exposed himself. Because of this, Stefan quickly became the top suspect in the case and so he was arrested just over two months after Leslie was killed on the 21st of December 1975. Stefan was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Leslie Molseed. He was interviewed by the detectives, but Stefan was just on his own in the interviews. He didn't have a solicitor present, which would not go down well at all today. I believe it's a right to one if they ask, and then the interviews are supposed to stop until a solicitor is present. However, this wasn't actually made a law until around the 80s, so it didn't benefit Stefan one bit. When Stefan was arrested, he didn't have a solicitor present during his questioning, even though he was a vulnerable adult. He had also asked for his mum to be there, but the police did not allow it. He underwent three whole days of very intensive questioning with the detectives until eventually, on the third day, he confessed to the murder of Leslie Molseed. But it is believed that he was actually forced into this confession by the detectives, which, I'm not going to lie to you, like I can totally believe that. One of the officers who played a big part in this case was Richard Holland, known as Dick Holland. He had actually been demoted in the Yorkshire Ripper case um, a few years after this due to complete failings in that. Now, I'll be doing an episode on the Ripper at one time, you know, stay tuned. I'll go into more detail on the failings and stuff. But he was also one of the main factors as well in a Judith Ward being wrongfully convicted, which she was part of the M6, or they said she was part of the M62 IR. IRA coach bombing murders so you know he never seemed to really get a proper lesson he always just got a slap on the wrist for not doing so great and it wasn't the only time he did that but yet he just yeah and he was one of those ones that you know he retired on a nice pension (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. Now, anyways, the police, they had no real evidence, but they wanted to wrap this case up. Christmas was coming. So due to all the pressure they were receiving from the public and also getting Stefan to admit to the murder, it was a great step forward for the police because, you know, the heat is now off of them. I'll also say once Stefan had a proper solicitor, he later withdrew his confession. He said that the only reason he confessed was because he was scared and worried that the police were going to hurt him if he didn't confess. And it was clear to him that a confession was what they wanted. And so he believed that, you know, if he gave them what they wanted, then they would let him go home to his mum. He also said um, later on as well that he thought if he was to say to the police this is what he did, 
the police would then go and investigate that, see, prove it was wrong, and they would know that he wasn't telling the truth and that he didn't do it. Now, on the same day that Stephen gave this confession, he was charged with the murder, which I think was on Christmas Eve. And then in July 1976, the case went to trial at Leeds Crown Court. The case went horribly wrong for Stefan. It really couldn't have gone any further away from helping him. His own defence team, who were supposed to be, you know, fighting for his innocence, didn't even really have his back at all. Their tactic during the trial was very questionable and they basically said to the jury that, you know, we don't think Stefan killed Leslie, but if you think he did, why not find him guilty of manslaughter rather than murder on the grounds of diminished responsibility? Now, they were going down the lines of diminished responsibility because Stefan had this condition called hypogonadism, which basically meant that he did not produce enough of the hormone to, to testosterone, which can have an effect on someone's development. We, and it did. Have we not oh, seen that before? I think we have because we have. I remember that word and I'm like, how do I know that? Yeah, we had that in a case before. Was it not? Um, I could be totally making this up. Was it not the grinder killer? Oh, I think, I think you're right. There was definitely something. Yeah. I could be totally wrong. If anyone can remember, please let us know. Because I actually, the minute you started saying that, I was like, we have covered this before. Because I remember asking you if you knew what it was. And I didn't know what it was either. Yeah. No, I, I think that is correct. Um, yeah. No, no. I think you're right. Um, And like that him as well it did have an effect on Stefan's puberty stage in his teenage years so not long before Leslie's murder Stefan had actually started receiving injections of the why can't I say this word testosterone hormone by his doctor and it's thought that as a result of this Stefan would have been getting kind of normal sexual I can't speak today sexual urges and sexual arousal for the first time at 23 years old whilst most men and boys you know they get those feelings when they're a lot younger and they're in their teenage years but with this condition it had an effect on Stefan's puberty stage so he hadn't gone through fully what others usually do and so with these injections Stefan was only just now getting the usual urges because he was now receiving the hormone. So from that, the defence argued that because of all of this, he couldn't necessarily control himself. And if he did kill Leslie, it was manslaughter because the sudden surge of testosterone meant that he couldn't control these new sexual desires. Now, the defence team had also forwarded this argument without actually consulting their client, Stefan. They hadn't um, consulted him first on what they were going to do with this. So they didn't have permission from Stefan to use this as a defence. And he obviously wanted to, them to prove that he was innocent of the crime, not for him to get a lesser sentence deal, but they were not there for that. And also, I can understand, you know, if you killed someone and your defence team are like, OK, we're going to get you a lesser sentence, then, yeah, you'd obviously be like, right, OK, great, I'll go for manslaughter. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, you totally would. Yeah. But if you knew you were so innocent, then you'd be like, what are you doing here, people? Now, oh, his... yeah, I find that really like interesting where um, going back to a few cases ago, Luke Mitchell, Jodie Jones. Um, obviously, people have their different thoughts on whether he was innocent, whether he was guilty, whatever they kind of think. That's not the point for this episode. If you're like, who are you talking about? We did that case oh, years ago. But basically, he was offered like a lesser sentence if he pleaded manslaughter and he was like I didn't kill her so I'm not pleading anything and he is still in prison 
to this day and that's like years years later I want to say like maybe 20 years later um but if he had pleaded manslaughter he'd be out by now but he's refusing to change his plea and has always said that he is not guilty and he's not changed it whereas they have said that if he had just said actually yeah fuck it manslaughter he'd be out yeah that's a tough one because we can discuss that further another time because obviously we don't this isn't the case for it but I mean like mm. would you just rather be like okay great manslaughter I'll go in for 10 years instead of 20 but it's hard it's isn't a it? hard one yeah absolutely now his defense team were pretty much I'm not going to say useless but they didn't help his case and they were telling the jury to consider you know the whole manslaughter rather than murder and they weren't convincing them to that you know he was innocent and that he should be acquitted of all the charges. Now something that the defence team didn't know however was some information that the police conveniently withheld from them. This was due to Stefan's hypogonadism. He couldn't actually produce sperm. He was infertile and yet the semen that had been found in Leslie's underwear had traces of sperm in it. So that was a huge piece of evidence in itself to prove that Stefan was not the one to kill her, but the police held it back. We have definitely covered this before. I can't remember. This is going to like really, really annoy me um, because we've definitely, definitely, definitely covered this before. But there was somebody, and I have a feeling it's the grinder killer. I could be totally, totally wrong, but... Yeah, I've got this. Oh, that's going to so annoy me. But yeah, we have definitely covered this before where it's like a really interesting sciencey thing because we were like amazed that you could even find that out, blah, blah. But the fact that they've like withheld it, I think, is bullshit because they could have easily ruled so many people out and obviously gone on with it. But that's just my opinion. I don't work for the police. I am a podcaster. <laughs> Detective Caitlin. Um, but that's no, nice. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in agreement with you. Um, also... I don't mean to be a spoiler here, but if you haven't already guessed it by the way I am telling you about Stefan's case, he is, in fact, innocent and he did not commit this murder. You probably already <gasps> got that. Yeah, sure. I didn't. Oh, did you not? No, wait. No. You're just being... Oh, no, I didn't. I obviously <laughs> just forgot what you said at the start. This whole time I've been like, arsehole. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Now, you oh. might have not got it. You might have just been confused with the way I was talking about this whole case, you know, because I wasn't being like not mean about Stefan, but I was like, you know, this case is going all this way. So it was just a need for the police to convict someone and convict someone fast. So Stefan is not the murderer. I can't believe you didn't guess. And maybe I just thought, anyway, <laughs> not the point. Now, maybe I there- got confused about the whole semen thing possibly i was thinking that was her semen so i was like well duh but i might have got this wrong yeah maybe or just admit i'll give it a listen (laughs) yeah now the reason that he couldn't have been the murderer was because obviously like i just said and like you just said caitlin even though you said it the wrong way around he couldn't produce sperm which the police knew but they didn't mention it and the defense had no clue about it and because of this Neither did the jury. The police also withheld evidence throughout this whole trial, which would prove that Stefan was innocent. 
As part of Stefan's defence, he took the stand and he said correctly that he had never met Leslie and therefore could not have murdered her. And he claimed he was tending to his father's grave with his aunt at the time of the murder before visiting a garden centre and then going home. When asked why he had confessed, he replied, I started to tell these lies and they seemed to please them and the pressure was off as far as I was concerned. I thought if I admitted what I did to the police, they would check out what I said, find it untrue and would then let me go. The girls who said as well that he ex exposed himself to them also took the stand to testify against Stefan. Now, it was no surprise that at the end of the trial, Stefan was found guilty of Leslie Mosey's murder and sentenced to life in prison. His conviction was secured by a 10 to 2 majority verdict on the 21st of July 1976, after five hours and 35 minutes of deliberation. The judge praised the three teenage girls who had mentioned the exposure claims, Buckley in particular, for their bravery and honesty in giving evidence in court and their sharp observations. The judge also praised the police officers involved in the case for their great skill in bringing to justice the person responsible for this dreadful crime and their expertise in sifting through masses Ooh, of material. I'm annoyed now. Yes, the judge also added, I would like all the officers responsible for the result to be specially commended and these observations conveyed to the chief constable. Now, D.S. John Ackroyd and D.S. Holland were singled out for praise. So well done to them. Before I move on, I would also just like to mention that it was later identified that the guy who exposed himself wasn't actually Stefan. The girls had made it up as well. And it was, in fact, a local milkman. And apparently the milkman, he didn't expose himself. He was just kind of going to the toilet outside by the youth club not a smart decision on his front but you know he wasn't purposefully yeah don't recommend that parts. you do that but i get what you mean no yeah and the girls didn't think it was like they just said it was stefan now as you can imagine his time in prison was absolutely horrific given the nature of the crime that he was convicted of you know child paedophiles and child killers are understandably at the very bottom of the food chain in prisons and they're um, knowingly hated i think paedophiles are just paedophiles i think child paedophiles would be a child that's a paedophile oh yeah <laughs> sorry i was like whoa, whoa i don't think there's child paedophiles <laughs> we're spreading rumors here <laughs> yeah that's well no okay you're completely right just paedophiles and child killers okay they are hated um, by other inmates and they're often targets of violent attacks which is still mm -hmm. now he was attacked several times in prison he received constant death threats he had to receive several stitches in his head at one point after he was attacked with a mop handle he was punched kicked beaten and often he would have to be kept in solitary confinement because of all the attacks against him now because of this it's so was... rough isn't it especially now that we know like he is innocent but like it's the they've got these specific wings for a reason and i think if you have committed these crimes then yeah face up to it but obviously because he's innocent there's really shit yeah absolutely and because of this he was then on his own in a cell and 
you know, locked up for his own safety and his mental health seriously declined over the years behind bars. Now, it's said that he started suffering from schizophrenia and he would experience psychosis and delusions. But despite all of this and everything that he was going through, he never gave up the fight to prove his innocence and he always maintained throughout his time in prison that he had been wrongfully convicted and that he had nothing to do with Leslie's murder. Now his mum Charlotte in particular fought very hard to prove her son's innocence. She never for one second believed that he had murdered Leslie and she just knew that her son would never have done anything like that. So while Stefan was locked up, Charlotte was an advocate for him and she campaigned tirelessly for her son's case to be reviewed and for him to be released from prison. Charlotte would contact anyone and everyone that she thought might be able to help, including politicians. So those included her local MP, Cyril Smith, and prime ministers at their times, James Callaghan and Maggie Thatcher. However, she kept being ignored over and over again. Like, they were Shock just like, by no Maggie Thatcher. Shock. Yeah. She was like, if you don't bring me money, I don't care. Anyway, until Stop it. <laughs> now, until the late 80s, and by this point, Stefan, he had been in prison for well over 10 years. Charlotte was finally put in contact with someone who was willing to help her and who also believed in Stefan's innocence. And this was a solicitor named Campbell Malone. He began looking extensively into the case and he launched an appeal. And in 1991, he managed to persuade the Home Office to review and reopen the case in a bid to clear Stefan's name. Of course, as part of this review, it was found that the West Yorkshire Police had made many huge errors in their investigation into Leslie's murder. The main one, of course, being that it was found that they had withheld the information regarding the semen evidence. They hadn't disclosed the fact that the killer's semen had sperm in it and that Stefan did not produce sperm, which they knew at the time. In addition to that, it was found that there was a witness who was able to confirm Stefan's alibi on the day of the murder. A member of the public had actually seen him at the grave and was able to confirm this. However, conveniently, they were never asked by the police to give evidence during the 1976 trial because it was just another thing that proved his innocence. As well as that, when the case was reopened in the early 90s, the young girls who identified Stefan as being the man who exposed himself to them just two days before the murder, by this point, they were in their late 20s or so, and they actually finally admitted that they had lied, and they admitted that they were wrong about Stefan exposing himself. And side note, not one of these girls ever apologised to Stefan or, you know, about doing any of this it was just like oh we were young it's like yeah but come on come on now now as a result of these findings in february of 1992 stefan who by this point was around 40 years old was finally acquitted and released from prison wow he had spent 17 years in prison before he was released and before it was finally proven that he was an innocent man Following Stefan's release, he did a couple of TV interviews about his terrible ordeal and he spoke about his time in prison and he talked about how the police essentially framed him for Leslie's murder. Now, despite being released and finally being free, Stefan still continued to struggle a lot with his mental health, as you would, and he apparently found it difficult to adjust to people being nice to him because, you know, Clearly, folks' attitudes, they changed, you know, now that he'd been proven innocent. 
but he'd been treated like shit for the last 17 years, so he wasn't used to people being nice. Now, Stefan, he was trying to remain positive throughout, and he said in his TV interviews that he had hopes for the future. You know, he wanted to marry and he'd go on nice holidays and he'd hope to have all of the opportunities that he had missed out on for the last almost 20 years. Sadly, though, Stefan would never get to do those things because the year following his release in December 1993, he died after suffering a heart attack in his home. No. Stefan was only free for about a year and 10 months before he died. And he also died before he actually got any compensation money that he'd been told that he would receive. Now, this was to be about half a million pounds for what he went through. And now this would have gone to any remaining family. However, his only family was his mum. And sadly, Charlotte tragically died just six months after her son in the May of 1994. So after campaigning her whole life to get Stefan free, he's now free. They both just, they come to a tragic end. Now, Stefan's story is heartbreaking. And also, it must have been so terrifying for all of these years to go through that. Like, I definitely wouldn't have coped. Now, we also need to remember Leslie's family. They thought their daughter's killer was safely behind bars. But that's not the case anymore. They have gotten away with it. And at the end of the day, they've lost their daughter. And all of these feelings are clearly going to start to come back. They would never go away. But I mean, 20 years later, when you find out the person isn't in jail, it must be awful. So before I move on from this part, I would also like to add that two people were charged um, in the police with doing acts to pervert justice for this case as they withheld evidence. One being Detective Superintendent Richard Holland, who I believe was the lead detective in the original inquiry, and another man named Ronald Out. Outeridge, the forensic scientist who worked on the case. However, these cases against them never actually went to court, so neither Richard or Ronald ended up going to trial because their defence teams argued that due to how much time had passed since the crime, a fair trial would not be possible, and the magistrate at the time agreed. And so the charges were dropped. No one in the police ever faced proper punishment for what they did to Stefan, which... No offence, like, that's old man's club, shake your hand and I'll get you off with it. So, with Stefan acquitted, the investigation into Leslie's murder was reopened and the real killer needed to be found. The case was handed over to Detective Chief Superintendent Max McLean, who was with the West Yorkshire Police, and he was going to be the one leading this new investigation. As part of the investigation, Max and his team decided to go over everything again, as you would, and they went over all the old statements, tips, leads, everything in the case file. Now, the police thought that they had a new potential suspect who was a local paedophile and had been charged with previous crimes. However, they could not put together enough evidence to convict him and they obviously didn't want a rerun of what had just happened. And so they had to make this a very thorough investigation and get this right. So we're now in the year 2000 and they decide to revisit forensic science because by this time it'd been 25 years since Leslie's murder and DNA and forensic technology had come a very long way since then. 
The police wanted to send all of the evidence in the case off for testing in the hopes that scientists might be able to collect some of the attacker's DNA from her clothing and things like that. However, it turns out that this evidence was actually destroyed. No, I knew you were going to say it and I was like, no, I simply don't believe you. Yep. So about 10 years after her murder in 1985, it was destroyed. Why? I never understand when they do this. I know you're going to give me an answer, but wait. I know. (laughs) I never understand why they do this. Even if the person has pleaded guilty and they said, yeah, I literally did it. Why? Why? But this person didn't say they did it. He was very clear this whole time that he was innocent. So did they not think that there was going to potentially be a retrial at some point or they might have to look at that again? Oh, that's even more annoying. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's exactly why they did it. Like you just said, this is never going to be needed. The murderer's behind bars. So Les's clothes, they were long gone. But thankfully, not everything had been destroyed. Some evidence had been kept and preserved in storage all this time. And it was some tapings that had been taken from her underwear. So back when Leslie's body was found, scientists used strips of sellotape to try and pick up any fibres from Leslie's pants to see, you know, what was on it. And these tapings hadn't been destroyed. So the police, who were conducting the new investigation, had them. As we know, semen was found in Leslie's underwear. So the police began thinking that maybe they'd be able to detect traces of semen on the tape and then get a DNA profile from them. 25 years after the crime. So the tapings were sent off for testing and luckily they were successful as there was a semen on one of the tapings and they were able to get a DNA profile of the perpetrator from it, which is obviously major development in the case as they could now use this DNA profile to compare it against any suspects that they've had in in the case so far and any future suspects that they may have. So the police first compared the DNA to Stefan and any other possible suspects that they had on their radars over the years but from everyone they thought it could be no one's DNA and both of them not a match to the killer. Another one to prove that it was definitely not Stefan. Following this, the DNA profile was then entered onto the National DNA Database in the hopes that a match would pop up. But unfortunately, one didn't, as the killer's DNA was not on the database at the time. So this was a bit of a setback for the police. And it was going to be another waiting game. They were going to have to keep looking into other potential suspects. And also, they had to regularly check the database for a match, just in case the killer popped up. Now, finally, a few years later... In October of 2005, it appeared as though the wait was over because finally a match had come back following the arrest of 53-year-old man in Oldham, which is just under seven miles away from Rochdale. Now, the reason this man was arrested was because of an incident following a sex worker who he had gone to meet in a hotel room and afterwards she contacted the police and accused him of assaulting her. Although the man was never charged with anything in relation to this assault against this worker, the man's DNA was still taken because just a couple of years before this law, it changed in England and Wales. It meant that anyone who was ever arrested would have to give a DNA sample even if they weren't actually going to be charged with a crime. So this man's DNA sample was taken. He was then released from custody, you know, a slap on the wrist, and his DNA was entered into the database. And when his DNA was entered, 
It ultimately came up as a match to the DNA in the Leslie Molseed case. So oh this my man, God. yeah, Leslie's killer, and his name was Ronald Castry. He was a local man, and he actually lived in Rochdale at the time of Leslie's murder, less than a mile away from where he, Leslie lived. And he was a known sex offender, a child sexual predator, and he was a paedophile. Ronald Castry was born on the 18th of October 1953 in the town of Littleborough in Manchester. So he had lived in and around the area of Rochdale his whole life. He was born to parents Eric and Marjorie and they were well off. They weren't mega rich, but, you know, financially stable. And so they were able to send Ronald to a private school. And he was able to take part in extracurricular activities. So, you know, it wasn't like he had an awful kind of upbringing. Ronald was their only child. So there is some indication that he was probably quite spoiled by his parents, particularly by his mum. Now, Ronald had a very different relationship with both his mum and his dad. His mum was very caring towards Ronald. She was giving. She was one that would spoil him. She would worship the ground that her son walked on. He could do no wrong in her eyes. You know, that sort of boy mum behaviour. No offence to anyone that is like that. Now, whereas Ronald's father, he was a complete opposite. He wasn't loving towards Ronald at all. He was a horrible. He would have go at him and criticise him all the time he'd call him names, he would just bully him. When Ronald was 19 years old though, in 1973 he met a woman that he would then go on to marry and she was called Beverly she was three years younger than him so she was only 16 years old when they met. They soon tied the knot and they moved in together and they decided to have children. So just two years after they met and married in 1975 the couple had their first baby, a wee boy named Jason Although some sources state that Ronald wasn't actually Jason's biological father because Beverly actually had an affair with another man. But I'm guessing it was agreed by Ronald that, you know, he'd raise him as his own. Beverly had to stay in the hospital a few weeks after Jason was born because she had deep vein thrombosis and she was admitted into the hospital on the 3rd of October 1975 and she was kept in and monitored for about a week or so and it turns out that it was just two days after she was admitted when 11-year-old Leslie Molseed went missing and was murdered. Ronald Castry abducted and killed Leslie whilst his wife was in the hospital and just weeks after their son had been born. As we know, Stefan was quickly put into this frame and saying that, you know, he was the murderer. So this allowed Ronald to keep under the radar, allowing him to reoffend and commit other very similar crimes against children. One being just three weeks before Stefan's trial for the murder began in 1976. So the year following Leslie's murder, Ronald abducted another young girl who lived pretty close to where Leslie lived. She was just nine years old at the time and on the 3rd of July 1976, Ronald kidnapped her, put her in his car and he took her to an abandoned kind of house or garage and it was there where he sexually assaulted her. By some miracle though, this little girl managed to get out of this house and escape Ronald. Ronald was actually caught for this crime. He was arrested and charged with gross indecency and indecent assault, which he pleaded guilty to, but unbelievably, he wasn't even sent to prison for this. His punishment for abducting and sexually assaulting a child was a fine of 
£50. So, of course, he went on to do it again. Just two years later, in July 1978, he was arrested and after he assaulted a young boy and he was charged with another kind of indecent assault and once again, he had a fine of £50. Four years after their first child, Jason was born in 1979, Ronald and his wife Beverly had a second child, another son, who they named Nicholas, who they called Nick. And five years after Nick came to their life, another child came along, a boy called Daniel. The way Ronald treated his family was awful. He was incredibly abusive towards his sons and also his wife Beverly. Nick recalls how his mum and dad would argue often and how these arguments led to his dad being violent towards his mum. Ronald would hit and beat Beverly on several different occasions and she would often have bruises on her from the injuries that she sustained. He would punish Beverly all the time for things that he believed she had done wrong. For example, if she hadn't cleaned the house or if she hadn't made dinner Shan brought him a drink in the evening he would just turn violent on one occasion he even broke Beverly's nose during an attack as well as being physically abusive towards Beverly though he was also wow. mentally and emotionally abusive he is an awful truly awful man he bullied his wife constantly telling her that she was worthless and useless that she could never do anything right and he treated his sons the same way he would bully them and one quote from his son Nick was my father was like a powder keg waiting to go off. We were always waiting for the next explosion. The only happy times were on holiday when we were away from the family home. We'd come in from school and if we made the slightest bit of noise, he would tell us to F off out the room. He'd throw meals at the wall, put his fists through the wall. He was a bully. There was no love or affection as well in their house. None was shown by their dad, obviously, because he is a cruel arsehole. But no love was also shown from their mum because she wasn't unable to show the kids love because she was so psychologically scarred by how Ronald had treated her she was traumatized by everything he had done and she was also too frightened to show any love because Ronald never did so she was probably going to go against him and she didn't want to do that now Ronald as well, shock horror, was also unfaithful to his wife pretty much throughout their whole entire marriage which is also why I believe that Beverly had an affair at the start and the whole child issue of it not being Ronald's. He would cheat on her with several different women and he would often use sex workers. He made no attempt to hide it whatsoever. He would literally just tell his wife and his kids, oh, I'm going out, I'm going to find a woman to sleep with. And he knew that Beverly would never try to stop him because he knew that she, he, she was scared and he was in control. Now, Ronald's father, Eric, was also a child sexual predator himself. He was arrested and convicted at one point for indecency towards a child. And so the apple didn't really fall far from the tree. Now, Ronald's Nick, it's Ronald's Nick, no, Ronald's son, Nick, also opened up about how he was sexually abused by his grandfather, Eric, during his early teenage years. So when he was just 14 years old, his granddad took him on a trip to London. They were staying in a hotel, but one night they were in the hotel, Eric sexually assaulted his grandson, which was just the start of the abuse, and it continued to the day that his grandfather died. Nick never actually told anyone about what his granddad did to him at the time because, you know, he was too scared to. But Nick says that he has wondered whether or not his father may have been the victim of sexual abuse at the hands of his granddad as well. So possibly this is all stemmed from that. 
After 20 years of marriage and abuse, though, in 1996, Beverly finally decided to leave Ronald. However, she decided to do it in secret. Now, Beverly and Ronald's second child, who by this point was 17 years old, had already made the decision to move out, and he agreed to take his mum and his younger brother Daniel with them so that they could finally escape their father's abuse. So one day, whilst Ronald was working in a comic book shop, which is what he ran, Nick and his mum and his brother quickly packed their bags They moved into a rental house and they were finally able to start a new life free from abuse and violence. Now, just a year after, in 1997, Beverly and Ronald officially divorced. Ronald, though, went went on and met another woman called Karen, whom he would go on to marry. They met at about 2003 and married in 2005. And he moved in with her and her three children and became their stepfather. They lived in a house not far from Rochdale, however, they weren't married for long before Ronald's second wife, Karen, was made aware of her new husband's true colours. So we are now up to date in October of 2005, where Ronald's DNA was entered onto the National DNA Database. 30 years later, the police had identified Leslie's killer, and it was Ronald Castry. So Ronald was arrested on suspicion of Leslie's murder on the 5th of November 2006, and he was arrested at his home and was taken to the police station. Following his arrest, Ronald was interviewed by the detectives, and of course he denied it. Despite the DNA evidence that was linking him to the crime, he was adamant that he was not the one responsible. Just a day after his arrest, Ronald was charged with murder and his plea hearing. He obviously pleaded not guilty, and so the case went to trial. His trial began on the 23rd of October 2007 at Bradford Crown Court and one of the key witnesses for the prosecution was Ronald's ex-wife Beverly. She bravely found the courage to tell the court all about the horrendous abuse that she was subjected to by her ex-husband during their 20-year marriage. Another witness was brought forward by the prosecution which was one of the children that Ronald abused, the nine-year-old girl that he had abducted and sexually assaulted just the year after after Leslie was killed. By the time of the trial in 2007, she would have been in her early 30s and she gave evidence during the trial and she talked about what she could remember about the day that Ronald attacked her. When the trial came to an end, the jury was sent off to deliberate and on the 12th of November 2007, they returned with a verdict of guilty. Ronald Castry was found guilty of the murder of 11-year-old Leslie Molseed and he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 30 years, which meant that he won't be eligible for parole until he is 83. Leslie's family were delighted with the outcome of the trial. After over 30 years, their daughter's real killer had finally been convicted and finally Leslie had justice. And that is the crazy story of Leslie Mosseed. That was a lot of twists and turns. Yes. It's mental how one thing from the police can change the whole thing. So much influence on a case, which is crazy, which is obviously good when they then come to like solving it. But when it comes to something like just hiding that kind of information about like the sperm and that was it. Yes. It's so mad. All that to put someone behind bars so that they could get the paperwork done practically just for their figures yeah basically um but then that is really good that they still at least 
found somebody that done it. It's not just a cold case. It's like, oh, we put the wrong person away. Sorry. At least the family have those answers, which is really important. So that is good, at least.